I would say that it's much easier to be an Austrian in New York as it would be to be a New Yorker in Austria. I didn't know the song. I had never heard the sound of music. <laughs> so this was all completely news to me. Uh, <laughs> they, of course, in turn could not believe that an Austrian did not know the sound of music. They basically thought it was the national anthem there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Adoptive Citizen podcast. I'm Joanna Philipp, Executive Creative Director adoptive citizen of the United States and Europe. And my guest today is Stefan Sagmeister, design legend and founder of Sagmeister Inc. in New York. Stefan is one of the world's biggest visionaries in the design space. Born in Austria, adoptive citizen of New York, he has designed for clients as diverse as the Rolling Stones, HBO, or the Guggenheim Museum. He has won two Grammy Awards and has been nominated eight times for it, on top of winning every single international design award out there. Solo shows on his work have been mounted all over the world. The Happy Show attracted way over half a million visitors worldwide and became the most visited graphic design show in history. He teaches in the graduate department of the School of Visual Art in New York and lectures extensively on all continents. A native of Austria, he received his MFA from the University of Applied Arts in Vienna and is a Fulbright Scholar, a master's degree from Pratt Institute in New York. Welcome to the Adoptive Citizen. This is episode three. For being part of this episode, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here and and to have our audience hear your personal story. Um, Obviously, not as a just a design legend and a storyteller and an artist that you are, but the story of Stefan Sackmeister, the immigrant, the adoptive citizen of the U.S. and the world. So again, thank you so so much for being here. Wonderful. No, I'll be happy to tell you whatever you want to know. Ask away. (laughs) Awesome. So as I was telling you a few minutes ago before we started, I think your role within the design industry, you know, has has been so revolutionary and maybe more than with some of the other guests that we have. I really want to focus on on your journey as an artist in a different country and how living somewhere else and traveling the world has impacted you creatively. So, of course, with the good and the bad and, you know, all the stuff that happened in your life and how that affected your creativity in a good and in a bad way. So. Let's just dive in. Um, so tell us a bit about your life story. Of course, I, I know I come from advertising and I'm sure a lot of the people from advertising and the design world, they know who you are. But from the people that are outside the design industry and the design world, you were born in Austria, uh, you moved to New York, then you moved to Hong Kong for a couple of years, then you returned to New York. So tell us, you know, that those first years as a world citizen, what made you first move out of Austria and how did you make U.S. your home? So just tell us briefly about where you started. started. Absolutely. I'll be happy to. So uh, I'm a designer um, and when I uh, studied design at the University for Applied Arts in Vienna, there I really enjoyed art school. Mm, mm. This was not true for my regular schooling. I actually totally hated school, but as soon as I could really choose on what to study, which of course was design, I really enjoyed it. And within the university, at the very end, when I was actually extremely busy doing my, uh, doing my thesis project, I saw a poster hanging in the dean's office that said apply for scholarships. And I didn't even wanna apply for a scholarship. I just saw the poster and felt, look, I'm so busy. I couldn't even apply for a scholarship if I wanted to. And then basically to prove to myself that I'm not that busy, that I still can apply, I asked the secretary in the dean's office for the form and I quickly uh, filled it out and then immediately forgot about it again. (laughs) And then, whatever, a month or two later, there was a letter that said I had to go into front of a commission and I went in front of that commission and I did that and again completely forgot about it. And then I got an acceptance letter uh, from a university in Chicago. Uh, It was the, the Art Institute in Chicago that they actually would give me a scholarship, but having been to New York, 
having been to the United States before, it was very clear to me that New York was the place that I wanted to be. So I said no to that scholarship, not knowing anything. You know, like yeah. I had no clue living in Vienna that getting a scholarship for the Art Institute was a big deal and, and me not accepting it was sort of crazy. But I was just, basically I was just ignorant. And the people that I talked to when I said, I'm not going to Chicago, they were shocked. And they said, well, you're never gonna get another scholarship. And I said, well, who cares? Uh, you know, I'm fine here. And then of course, two months later, I got a scholarship for Pratt in New York where I really wanted to be. And then when I came here, only, I think only once I arrived in New York, it dawned on me that the whole thing that I had applied on was a Fulbright. I mean, I did know that in Vienna, but I didn't know that it was a big deal. So when I arrived here and pretty much, I mean, it was a very easy start for me because uh, I think that from the teachers or from the faculty point of view, they knew that I was here coming with a Fulbright. So that, I think, had a certain cachet. Mm -hmm. They're also most of my fellow Fulbright students were somewhere in the math or physics world. So their arts program woman was very happy that somebody from her world was here and basically covered me with free tickets for all sorts of music and Broadway show. So I, it, was a, it was a very easy time to arrive at a new country. I can say that. Well, how old were you when you arrived um, in New York? Uh, this would have been in 1986, which would have made me 24. Uh-huh. I was, I was always uh, wondering, because I keep reading, uh, you know, there's a bunch of studies that show that uh, if you come with school in a different country, it's a little bit easier for you. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that that's a confirmation that when you, you come into a school, it just becomes a little bit easier yeah. for you. I mean, I literally was able to lay myself into a maid's bed because, uh, you know, in the two years that I did a master's degree at Pratt in Brooklyn, uh, I, of course, was able to make all sorts of friends, was able to make all sorts of connections. Mm -hmm. So uh, even when, and you had mentioned it, even after the Fulbright, when I went back home for, uh, for a year and then went to, to Hong Kong for two, when I came back uh, here then, uh, back again, this which was in 92, uh, those friends and those contacts were still all here. So even when I came back, it was just a very, very easy time to land again. I had also, before I left, just literally as the last thing that I did, I actually started the green card process. Not really, I didn't even know if I wanted to come back. I basically just sort of like started it, I don't know, to leave one more option open for my life. And yeah that just happened to come through at the very end uh, of my time in Hong Kong when I really thought I needed to get out of Hong Kong. So it all, you know, at that point in my life, I think later on, specifically, I think once I came back to New York, I actually started to look at my life more with a plan and more with some sort of goals in mind. But at, at, until that point, I was very, taking advantage of whatever fell into my lap, as was that scholarship, as was, you know, the green card. It was, this was not part of a bigger plan. You know, you've, you've come to New York to study and then you went back to Austria for a couple of years and then you moved to Hong Kong. I, I, let, me, let, let me stop on Austria a little bit. How was it for you to go back home after you studied in New York? Um, did you enjoy being back home? Were you still wondering, you know, what's out there, what's out in the world? And maybe that's what drove you to move to Hong Kong and experience even the east side of the world. I'm just curious, like this interesting travel that you had from Austria to New York, back to Austria and then Hong Kong and then back to New York. I'm just curious what drove you um, to do that. Well, the, the Fulbright scholarship uh, I had uh, 
elongated for a year so I could do a year's worth of work study that I did after the two years uh, in New York. Mm -hmm. And then it had a home residency requirement. So you basically had to go home because that was the foundation idea of the scholarship that you would go home and enlighten the, the people in Austria with what you've learned uh, in the faraway country. So I went back home for a year. I actually had to do civil service. Like, you know, Austria at that point was still now has a draft and I could get out of the military service uh, by, you know, being a conscientious objector. So I had to do civil service, which actually after having just spent three months, three years in New York and doing civil service at a uh, refugee home outside of Vienna, was not fantastic, I have to say. Yeah. I initially thought that it would do me good, sort of like to see something else than this, you know, pure concentration on design. But it turned out that I really missed it. And even when I, even in that, uh, in that refugee camp, I did, I managed to do quite a lot of design work, like, you know, to draw a big three-dimensional map of the camp to create all the signs for the doors and, you know, wayfinding and things like that. So I, I tried to basically apply the skills that I had learned as good as I could. But then as soon as that uh, uh, civil service time was over, I visited a friend in Hong Kong, started to visit design studios simply to figure out what they would, uh, what they are working on and what Hong Kong design is like again with no real plan in mind and then got an offer by a, by a design group and I wound up working there for two years. Oh wow, that's quite the story and then you moved back to US where you're living today as well, right? Yes, absolutely. Like uh, it, uh, one of the many advantages of the job in Hong Kong besides from really being able to learn a lot and getting kind of to start my own design group there. So mm -hmm. I learned also quite a lot about how to run a business. And because mm. it was quite commercial, I learned a lot about all the things I never wanted to do again in my life, which, <coughs> sorry, sounds flippant, but it was really, really helpful because Hong Kong was incredibly fast. So you could, you could learn these things, uh, uh, specifically the things that you never wanted to do again, very, very quickly. And then when I came, to, when I, uh, came back to New York, I worked for basically my favorite design studio, not only in New York, but probably in the world, a studio called Emmond Company, run by a guy called Tibor Kalman. So I worked for them for half a year and then opened my own place, uh, which I think was then, I was just about 30. And this was really the first time that I actually did have some perspective and I did have a goal and I did wanna open a small design studio, which, uh, it, which should concentrate on work within the world of music. Uh, the goal, of course, or the idea was that I would combine my two big loves, music and design, into one thing and, uh, you know, create album covers for my favorite band. That was the goal. I wonder if you've ever stopped and, and wonder yourself, who would Stefan Zagmeister be if you would have stayed back in Austria? Did you ever make the mental exercise to figure out what would your career would, would, would have looked like if you've not have traveled the world to develop the person that you are today? Well, it would be a very different thing, but I mean, without any doubt, you know, meaning there is, a, a, from a pure practical point of view, there is no music industry to speak of in Austria, or definitely not one that you could open a design studio to do work exclusively for it. Like, you know, there is, uh, meaning yes, many of the international labels have a small office in Vienna mm -hmm. that, you know, deal with 
local artists that might be, you know, that might work within the German speaking area of Austria, Germany and Switzerland. And Austria definitely has maybe a couple of bands that would be known within those three countries. And very here, very, very rarely here and there, you have an outlier. I think the only one we had in the last decades who would actually go to international fame would be Falco, who had a number one hit with Rock Me Amadeus in the United States. But uh, outside of that, and yes, you know, recently, uh, uh, Austria won the European Song Contest or so, but this is not an industry where you could basically work in uh, as, a, as a designer for sure. So of course my trajectory would have been a completely different one if I would have stayed in Austria, no, no doubt about it. And of course, I think that that is very, very much true for me as a designer. Uh, and I'm sure it would be true for me as a person as well, no doubt about it. For sure, for sure. And, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about music. Um, as, you know, you've, you've just said that you started the company around 30 and you kind of knew, you, you had a first perspective of, of where you want to go as an individual and, you know, from a, from a career perspective. So I know you started the, the, the design shop to design for the music industry, but you've only, if my information is correct, you've only signed your first client within a year of doing that. So tell me a bit about that journey. How did you, how did you sign your first contract and uh, with a, with a, you know, with a band to design their covers? I know you've, you've done for so many artists like Lou Reed and Rolling Stone. So how did that happen? Well, uh, I basically wrote to all the labels that I could, that, you know, at that point, of course, this was, you know, 93, so this was mm -hmm. pre-internet, so it was a little bit of work to figure out who at what label would be responsible for commissioning covers. And then uh, I wrote to them and asked for, uh, for some time for an interview. And I got quite a lot of interviews because on my resume, it said Emmon Company, and Emmon Company at the time really was a very prestigious place to work. So they assumed, you know, I couldn't have been completely without talent if I was a proper designer at Emmon Company. And so I got to see many of the labels, and they actually did like my portfolio, and they did really uh, promise me to give, to send jobs my way. But it didn't really happen. Mm. What did happen was that I started to do some smaller jobs for people that I knew. And one was a Austrian guitarist and singer who was the leader of an alternative rock band called HB Thinker. They were known in the New York underground. And I made, they had a, a, an American uh, New York based independent record label. And so I designed the cover for them. And that cover was actually nominated for a Grammy. And that made the difference, I think, because the Grammys, of course, are definitely tightly watched by the record industry. So uh, as right. soon as we got that Grammy nomination, we didn't win, but when, as soon as we got that Grammy nomination, I think many of the the, the record company, record label people remembered that they had met me and seen me and then jobs started to trickle in. There's two things that I really love about this story. One, I was, I was looking on uh, some of the content that you have on the website where you talk about how there's a lot of people that are sending you specifically on Instagram, maybe work that they're doing and you mm -hmm. can't reply to all of them, obviously, because I'm sure there's a ton of them. But sometimes you pick one or two that are actually sending some pretty de pretty decent work and you want to feedback and help them grow that. And I think, you know, just listening to your story and the determination that you had to send, you know, a, probably a, a, a dozen letters to music labels to give you a shot. I think you're just paying back almost like to what what you got as well when you started. And I, I really love that story. And I think the second thing that I, I was 
thinking as you talked was just thinking about the stories that I've recently heard about, you know, successful stories of people that moved to America was that they've all had this sort of determination, sometimes blindly, right? Just listening to you writing all these letters to all these music labels, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's determination blind. Like you didn't care that, you know, they will not answer you. You maybe you, you've not even taken that, you know, the, the no answer into consideration. And I, I think that's something to remember by a lot of people that are just starting and, um, and, you know, trying to make a, a, a difference or trying to make a new career in another country. So I really love that story. I mean, I would think that this is true for immigrants and for local people. I mean, I definitely remember a, an article in one of the business magazines, it might have been Bloomberg, where uh, CEOs were asked, what is the one, the one, uh, their one uh, talent or their, their one strategy that would got that got them where they are, and the one the one that was by far by far mentioned most often was tenacity. Mm-hmm. It was mentioned much more often than leadership or uh, or creativity or you know being able to balance the books or whatever else was in there. Like tenacity really seemed to be the one thing that uh, while the, the Fortune 500 CEOs at least uh, thought was the one thing that made them successful. And I'd say that there were definitely a good number of jobs that we were involved in where uh, I questioned if I should continue them many times because they were just very difficult to do. And uh, when I did continue, which I did almost always, uh, it, I was mostly very happy that I did, that I was able to you know, go through the ups and downs and take the, the downs somewhat in stride and sort of you know, uh, jump over some hurdles in order to uh to get them done for sure so you know what let's let's uh talk a little bit about um about those hurdles so i was uh i was listening to uh a ted speech of yours i think he was dating back like 2011 and you said something really fascinating to me the fact that you were keeping a diary since the age of 12 which is, is amazing. I don't know that you're still doing that, but it was amazing to me to hear that. I still am doing that, absolutely. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So if you, could, if you could flip pages back to, you know, when you were 24 and arrived in New York, I wonder what were the first things that you noticed about the city that, that were different to you? And, and the, the reason why I'm asking you that is, especially from a creative person, Sometimes you, you know, you notice things that others don't. And to me, when I moved countries, it almost felt like it's a, it's a white piece of paper that, you know, I was noticing things that people that were living in that country for, for such a long period of time stopped noticing. And I wonder if you can, if you would just go back in time, if you can, were there any things that you noticed or, you know, that annoyed you or that made you laugh? Anything that was just that sparked your curiosity when it came to the culture or the city or the school, whatever you can remember? Well, I would say that uh, I first actually came to New York on a, on a trip with my brother-in-law. This was right after graduating high school with 18. And, and uh, I think then, but also at 24, probably what made the biggest impression was how close the very poor are together with the very rich. Like mm-hmm. that I was just not used to from Austria. But there would be such an incredible right. difference yeah. in, yeah. uh, in, you know, in well-being, you know, where you would see these, you know, uh, bra- like I remember an image where uh, 
this fancy building, probably somewhere on Fifth Avenue, had uh, the uh, the fire. Uh, how do you call it? The the hydrant, the fire hydrant, yeah. was made out of brass, and there was a, a homeless person leaning against that brass fire hydrant. It just seemed like such a crazy image uh, to me. Like you know that on one hand these guys would spend untold amount of money to fancy up their fire hydrant. And on the other hand, uh, you would have people living on the street. So I think that that was definitely, uh, that was definitely quite memorable. Uh, I also do remember that everywhere I looked and, and went, the city seemed unbelievably vast. So it's like, I remember thinking, I, even if I would live here for decades, I don't think that I could ever really get this city. Just, it seemed so incredibly big. And that hugeness was very appealing to me. Like I remember, see, I grew up in a very small town, in a very pretty town in, in the western part of Austria, very close to the border of Switzerland. And this is, you know, on a large lake with the mountains in the back, a very, it's a nice place, meaning like a, it's a beautiful small town. And uh, when I moved to Vienna to study design, I hoped to move to the big city, but Vienna really is a, you know, not unlike Paris, is a place of 23 districts that every one of those districts has its own little main street and it's almost like its own little town. So Vienna didn't really feel like a metropolis it was more sort of 23 smaller places, very, very close to each other. And when I first saw Manhattan, it really felt, oh my God, okay, now this is a real city. This is a real metropolis where the horizon or the end of it is not really visible, like in that famous, you know, New Yorker cover mm -hmm. uh, by Steinberg. So it's uh, that sort of like inscrutability seemed very enticing to me. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. And I, as you were talking, I was just thinking that it's not just the hugeness, it's also the fact that a city like New York changes all the time, right? Like, you know, there's different high rises coming up, whereas uh, uh, cities in Europe maybe don't change as fast. Oh, know? very true, very right. true. Meaning that I would say that in the roughly three decades that I've lived here, the city went through such incredible changes that it's almost a different place, including like, you know, I'm uh, European enough that I'm not a big mover. You know, I've been living in the same place now on 14th Street since 93. So I've been in the same place for 27 years, but that the block that I'm living on completely utterly changed the neighborhoods totally changed like you know if you look at Chelsea in 1993 when I bought my apartment there was not a single gallery in all of Chelsea the meatpacking district existed because it had meatpacking but there was no there was well I think later on no, in 93, I think there was one single restaurant in the meatpacking district, which was Florent, which we did advertising for at Emmon Company. But that was it. And uh, it, so obviously there was no Highline. It, it was just a completely different situation where in that time, you definitely wouldn't have seen a single tourist on 10th Avenue and 14th Street, you know, while, I mean, now, of course, we have COVID time, but um, uh, let's say if we go back a year, you know, there were thousands of tourists uh, in that world. So it's just a, it's a, it's a new, it's a different city. And you're totally right. If I go back to Vienna, there are, in that time, there have been some changes, but they were tiny in comparison. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, let me ask you this. So, you know, there, there's this conception that um, people who are being stereotyped or um, 
face some sort of discrimination are usually coming from more underdeveloped countries or developing countries. So I wonder, you coming from Austria, which is obviously such a highly developed country, I'm curious, how was your transition? Have you ever been stereotyped? Like, even if it was just one of those annoying, ignorant things, like if you've seen The Sound of Music movie, or I don't know if you've ever had any sort of stereotyping going your way in any of the countries you lived in. You know, I've been very lucky in this way. So uh, I definitely faced no discrimination whatsoever. Like I've never felt, not once, that I didn't get a job because I didn't speak, you know, English with, without an accent. So from that point of view, I think that New York has been, or the, even the whole United States have been incredibly positive to me. I would say that it's much easier to be an Austrian in New York as it would be to be a New Yorker in Austria. <laughs> like if you, if in Austria, if you are, if you, I would say, if, if you live in Austria and you speak uh, German with a strong accent, as I still do after all that time, I wouldn't be surprised if you would, if you would experience some sort of disadvantages. And I've never had that here at all. If at all, maybe even some advantages, specifically in my field, because somehow they thought, well, he's European, he must know something about design, possibly. But definitely no disadvantages. The stereotypes, yes, but I was never really much annoyed by them. I mean, I was more surprised. Like, I remember uh, at the very beginning, I dated a lovely woman from New Jersey. And when I visited her family uh, for the first time, the whole family stood up and when I, as I entered their living room, sang Edelweiss. But I didn't know the song. I had never heard the sound of music. <laughs> so this was all completely news to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, of course, in turn could not believe that an Austrian did not know the sound of music. They basically thought it was the national anthem there. So it was there were these, you know, wonderful little misunderstandings, but I didn't find them annoying in the least. I found them, I don't know, charming. That's amazing. And it's funny, I mentioned sound of music and that's exactly what happened because if you Google like some of the biggest stereotypes against uh, Austrians, that's around the sound of music and you're kind of confirming the story which i actually love <laughs> it's just not a famous film in austria it's uh it's uh like you know when i um later on went to salzburg and i saw you know leaflets being given out that there is a sound of music tour this is all baffling to austrians this is basically this is a, a whole american deal but you know it's uh yeah, I find uh, I find the whole uh, that whole thing charming. <laughs> I think the first time I've I've seen one of your speeches, I was in Golden Drum in Slovenia. I don't know if you remember. Um, in two thousand thirteen, I do remember talking there absolutely. <laughs> and you talked about the Happy Project, and um, you introduced the audience to you know, I think now everybody knows within within the industry that you're taking one year sabbatical every seven years and how the work that you managed to do in that year actually, you know, helps you to push the work in the next seven, which I always found like such an interesting way of looking at, at progress. And I wonder if you're, are you traveling somewhere else or sometimes you're just taking a sabbatical in New York and how is that impacting creativity? I just, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, absolutely, I'm still doing that. Uh, I've done now three full year sabbaticals. The mm -hmm. first one was I. The first one I did stay in New York because the whole thing was so new to me, and I was so scared uh, mm. of doing it that I didn't even I didn't even consider on top of it also going somewhere else. Like that seemed a big enough bite. Like closing the studio after seven years seemed a big enough bite. To me, I didn't, yeah, I didn't consider to leave New York on top of it. The second one, I wanted to be different. So I did 
do the sabbatical somewhere else. And uh, my choice at that point was Bali. So I spent a year in Bali uh, with some other people who came to work with me and was also wonderful. And then the third one, again, I wanted it to be diff uh, different. So I chose three cities. I was the first third in Mexico City, the second third in Tokyo, and then the third third in a tiny village in the Austrian Alps. So wow. two very, three very different places, the first two being the biggest and the second biggest city in the world, and then to have as a contrast program, a tiny picturesque village in the Austrian Alps. Uh, and all three sabbaticals were successful. By successful, I mean that they were primary drivers of ideas mm. for projects that I specifically now with the advantage of hindsight find worthwhile to do. So if I look back at you know, the many, many, many things that we completed in the studio years, you know, uh, Sagmeister Inc. has a studio now is uh, dum, 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 93, you know, close to 20, 28 years old. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I look back at the hundreds of projects that we completed, most of the ones that I now, when I look back, think, oh, this was really, I'm very glad we did that. That was very much worthwhile to do. We were somehow connected to the work or to ideas had within the sabbaticals. So, uh, and I would say on top of it, one of the major reasons why I could still today look at my job or at my profession as a calling rather than just work or a career, I would say are also the sabbaticals. So it's very, very like, like for me, these, these times were unbelievably important and helpful. And I would say, I used to be always quite careful in recommending it to other people, but I actually at one time, long time ago, I think 10 years ago or so, did a talk at TED, at the TED conference. And of course, like all TED talks, they would put them online on TED.com. And that talk got incredibly, you know, also like many TED Talks, you know, millions of views. And so here and there, I bump into somebody, often at a conference, that said, oh, they've seen my TED Talk about the sabbaticals, and they did one too. So, of course, my next question is, you know, so how was it? <laughs> and every single one, in the meantime, I talked to many dozens of people possibly hundreds of people, every single one of them answers with shiny eyes. And, you know, terms like, this was the best thing I've ever done in my life, or in that vein is almost one of those kind of terms is basically part of every answer that I get. And most interestingly, these people come from totally different situations. I've seen uh, uh, rich people tell me that, poor people tell me that, people from rich countries, people from poor countries, people who work for large corporations, people who have tiny studios themselves, people with families, people with no families. Like it seems that it is actually possible for many, many, many people to do that. All of them are scared in the beginning because it's a big step. I mean, I am now not scared anymore of doing it because I've completed three successful sabbaticals. So for me now, the, the bump of doing that has been reduced to zero, but I was scared shitless the first time around. You know, I've had all sorts of fears of, oh my God, it will look unprofessional. All the clients that I so carefully you know, cultivated over the past seven years will be gone. Uh, we will be forgotten. I will have to basically found a new studio because we'll have forgotten. And none of these fears actually turned out to be true at all. Well, it's kind of interesting to see that, 
you know, people's eyes were sparking when you were asking how he was. And as you were talking, I was thinking, yes, of course, because in our, you know, day-to-day jobs, you're only giving and giving and giving, right? Information in, of course, in, in exchange for, for, for money. And then I think in, um, when you're taking a sabbatical, you're absorbing, you're absorbing information instead of just giving it away. And I think that fulfills you in a way that you've missed for so many years. Actually, when I was um, starting to uh, think about, you know, taking sabbaticals and asking you about them, um, I was thinking, is it that the cultural differences of the countries that you interact with, are those a seed of inspiration, perhaps, for your work? Sure. I mean, that's, that was the, the, as I said on the first one, I stayed in New York because it was just already so new for me, but very purposefully, I put the second one into, in this case, into Indonesia, into Bali, because uh, whatever, numerous reasons. One was that I had been to Bali and knew something about its geography. So I kind of knew where I would want it to be because I didn't want to spend the first part of that year figuring out where I should be in a place. So it was comfortable to me that I've been there before and I kind of knew the lay of the land. Two, I knew that it had an incredibly vibrant craft scene. So if I would design something, chances that I could get that made right there and then, or at least a prototype uh, that I could get made would be very large. And three, it was gorgeous, like, you know, very gorgeous landscapes, wonderful, wonderful and kind people. Uh, So that basically sealed the deal. But the fact that it was foreign was incredibly important to me. The same, of course, very, very true for the third sabbatical, I chosen those places very carefully. Mexico City, I've been to all of those places before, again, but uh, I didn't know them well, but I knew that all three places, Mexico City, Tokyo, and uh, that small village in Austria, that they, again, they would have craft cultures in very, very different kinds of craft cultures. Mexico City, an urban one because of the, it's such a big, you know, like from the area, such a big city that you still have urban manufacturing going on. You know, something that basically is not happening in Manhattan at all. Like, you know, all manufacturing spaces, the former lofts have been taken over by luxury condos. There not much, is actually being manufactured in Manhattan. I think there is still some tiny pockets of textile or so, but nothing to really uh, uh, speak of. Mexico City is very different in that way. Mm. Uh, Tokyo, again, is different because it has a very sophisticated high-end craft culture. And actually, similar in that small village in Austria, you have an exemplary uh, uh, conglomerate of local craftspeople who got together and actually created a beautiful exhibition space where they show their wares and get together. All of those things were very important to me because again, I wanted to have the possibility of being able to get things done or at least talk to people who are part of that culture. It then turned out that that year, that last, that third year, I was mostly working on uh, the, this uh, idea of beauty, both in book form, but also for a large exhibition that we then created two years uh, later, two years after the sabbatical, but a lot of the footwork, a lot of the ideas were created for that exhibition and the book were created during that sabbatical, and it turned out that I didn't really need the craftspeople that much. Actually, not quite true. There were a number of things that are still in that exhibition that I commissioned right there. For example, in Mexico City, we created, we commissioned, or I commissioned a whole bunch of uh, pretty sophisticated ceramic pieces that. Uh, that were done right there in the city. 
Wow, amazing. I think your pursuit for finding, you know, different cultural angles to design is just one of the things that makes your work so outstanding, of course. Do you think that today, just given the, the you know, where the world is and how just how globalized we are and how we're like the instant messaging generation, do you think that using your cultural roots can still be a, a strong point for different differentiations for many artists? So if you're if you're a Balinese living in New York and you know you want to pursue an artist career, do you feel like playing those cultural Balinese roots can can be a differentiating point for you? Or do you feel like in today's world where things have become so commercialized and globalized that's not such a strong point anymore? No, I actually believe that we are, this is going to become a bigger issue as we move forwards. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, if I look, let's say, a couple of years into the future, uh, as we, you know, going to come out of COVID <laughs> and people, uh, I think, will go back to travel, specifically travel for pleasure. I've, my guess would be that business travel will probably take a permanent hit in some way or another because we just all found out that much of that travel wasn't really all that necessary. It can be done in a different uh, in a different sort of way, but I would say travel for pleasure will will for sure resume. And I think as so many of us, and as uh, a giant middle class around the world, a newly minted middle class, specifically in Asia, I mean specifically in China and in India, is discovering the world. I think that none of all of the of, of those people, but nobody that I've ever met has a big interest in the world looking exactly the same everywhere they go. Meaning there are some exceptions. I think that there is a couple of things that we find comfortable that they might be similar. But in general, I think we all love diversity. I think you can even scientifically prove that how we would love diverse kind of experiences, diverse kind of views and diverse kind of objects. So this downside of globalization that I would say the international style, that you see the same looking building, the same box in Jakarta that you just saw in Johannesburg, that you just saw in Anchorage, I think is not really what we all want Mm. to see and want the world to look like. So my guess is that a localization and a bonus on the ability for designers and architects to work within their roots, uh, I think will become more and more important. Um, So we're at almost a time, I want to be cautious of your time, and uh, it's it's now becoming a tradition that I ask some of the same questions towards the end of the episode. So this should be super fast. Like one thing I want you to think about is if you could if you could think about somebody, it could be anybody in the world, somebody famous, somebody close to you, it doesn't matter, that's an immigrant um, that you look up to or you admired or that inspired you in your in your career or your life. Who would that person be? I mean, there's tons. Uh, the one that I would mention immediately would be Tibor Kalman, who definitely was my biggest mentor within my design world. He is the guy who ran that company, Emmond Company. He uh, came from Hungary and, uh, you know, was just, uh, I think, in many ways, because I worked for him, but also before, because I was in contact him in contact with him for many years before I started to work for him, uh, kind of showed me the way or showed me what to design and for whom to design. And uh, even some things that I haven't gotten at the time, uh, I then understood them 
as I, you know, found my own way. So I would, yeah, I think Tibor probably would be my number one immigrant influence in my life. Amazing. And then if you could give one advice to a young designer just moving into a foreign country, it doesn't have to be US specifically, what would that be? What would you advise them to do? Well, uh, go out a lot, talk to people a lot, become part of the culture, become part of that new country. Like don't, uh, do not sit at home. Do not just, you know, do the things that you do, but try to be as outgoing as possible. I found that very, very easy for me here because, you know, I stayed the first six months in a dormitory in New York where, and the whole dorm was international students. So everybody looked to make for new friends. So mm. this was basically the easiest thing in the world. When I then, for later on, when I did the, uh, the sabbaticals, it was a bit more difficult than I had to do to work harder at it. I mean, specifically in Bali, I didn't know anybody. I had a couple of phone numbers or maybe more than a couple. I probably had 10 phone numbers from friends of friends who, you know, some were quite happy to hear from me, others not so much. So again, I kind of had to be persistent in pursuing them. And, uh, but I definitely also in Bali got to know a lot of people. And I definitely, even if I would go back to Bali now, I would definitely still have many friends there. Uh, the same would be true for Mexico City. Uh, probably lesser so in Tokyo, since uh, I guess the culture there is a little bit more reserved. But uh, I think that would be my one, number one tip is try to integrate in the, into the culture as good as you can. Thanks everyone for tuning in for another episode of Adoptive Citizen. If you liked today's story and would like to follow more, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. In the next episode, we'll hear the powerful story of a London chef featured in Netflix Chef's Table series, who made a promise to herself when she was just a young kid in Calcutta that the world will know her name. Today, she lives by that promise as she looks to empower and have a positive impact in the lives of other immigrants. There's a lot of exciting stories coming up. So don't miss out.